We're going to read from the scriptures as it uh, says on the sheet. We're going to read Psalm 103. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 933. We're going to read this psalm and then when we're singing our third hymn, I'll hand over to, to Billy to bring the word to us. But this great psalm, Psalm 103, uh, we are going to uh, read, having already sung it in a way. Psalm 103, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. On those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments, to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you minister of his, who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Turn to Isaiah, please. Isaiah chapter 9. It's page number uh, 1069 in the Pew Bible, 1069. Just going to read from first. Uh, 6 and the verse 7 Isaiah 9 verse 6 for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called wonderful counsellor Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, 
Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the seal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. Well, friends, Isaiah introduces this passage by announcing in quite striking fashion that into the darkness of the world that he and his contemporaries inhabit, light has come. Into their moral decadence, into their corruption, superstition, and into their materialism, a light has dawned. And yet, as we have noted, he, that is Isaiah, was able to speak both of the then and of that which was still in the future. As we read our Bibles, we discover that one of the metaphors that is provided for what it means to come to know the living God, for God to come and meet with us, is this whole concept of light shining into darkness. So the picture of darkness that is described in Isaiah chapter 9 is simply a representation of the darkness of the hearts and lives of men and women until the light of this glorious gospel shines in upon them. And as we noted this morning uh, in John's gospel, John was saying very much the same thing, but obviously just from a slightly different vantage point. But John was saying in his prologue uh, concerning Jesus, uh, in John chapter 1, verse 9, uh, the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world, that's, that's Jesus, he had come into the world to bring light into the darkness and once again you see there the light penetrating darkness when you go into Luke's dramatic account concerning the arrival of the angelic host coming to meet with the shepherds again it's no surprise to us that Luke says that the light of the gospel of God shone all around them as we were singing in that uh, second carol this evening. So much so that Luke records that the shepherds were greatly afraid. And then when Luke in the Acts of the Apostles describes the encounter between uh, Saul of Tarsus, as he was then, and the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus road, uh, Luke describes how Saul throwing himself to the ground uh, simply because of the light from heaven that was brighter than the noonday sun had flashed all around them. Now this picture of light that comes to penetrate all the darkness, it runs right throughout the entirety of the, the Bible. It speaks to the clarity of the good news of the gospel. It's light coming uh, to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. It's light, it's light coming to those who you know, walk 
in, the, uh, in that place of darkness. Uh, God shines his light uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and this light, you know, in the light of that obvious statement, this light is found finally and fully in the Messiah whom Isaiah introduces to us as the child born, the son given, who is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He is the one already referenced in uh, chapter 7 as Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one who, who is Jesus. He is the saviour of our sins. And so friends, tonight we come to everlasting father. And like our previous considerations, we have the challenge before us of seeking to work out just exactly what this confess. Now, there are two things that we need to know immediately about this. Two things that are not the case. First of all, we need to know that this is not a reference to the first person of the Trinity. Jesus is not God the Father. And we would immediately go wrong if we thought somehow or another that Isaiah, having spoken first of the Messiah, was now speaking of God the Father. He is not doing that. Now, I mentioned that Highlight it simply because of those who would adhere to uh, Sabellianism or modalism. They would latch on to this, this name here in Isaiah 9 and 6. They latch on to it and use it vigorously to trumpet their heretical cause. And you say, well, Billy, that's irrelevant to me because Sabellianism, modalism, well, when did I ever encounter anything like that? Well, these groups are found mainly within Pentecostal, Pentecostal oneness, Jesus only groups. And you say, well, there you go, Billy, you know, I'll never be a mile within a mile of those places. But how many of us flick through free view or your um, satellite channel or whatever and you stop sometimes on one of those God channels and usually at night it's a, it's a you know the TV presenter uh, T.D. Jakes who, who's there in, in the evening you know from the, the potter's house and uh, there's all the amens and everything from the congregation and he's got his hanky out and he's wiping his sweat, sweat off his brown, off his brow. Uh, he has won this Pentecostal. You know, as so you say, I'd never encounter these people, but sometimes they come right into your living room. And you're not even aware of it. Uh, and they say God isn't Trinity. God isn't three distinct persons, but rather three modes modalism three modes or forms 
of activity under which God manifests himself. Now, why do they latch onto this phrase? Simply because of over 1,000 <coughs> references to the Father in Scripture. This is the only one in which the name of the Father, the name Father, is clearly applied to Jesus. Now they have their proof text. You see, they can turn you to Isaiah 9 verse 6 and they triumphantly cry, see, there it is in the Bible. You are Bible-believing Christians, or so you tell me. And here the Bible calls Jesus Father. One reference is felt by them to be sufficient <coughs> sufficient to counteract <coughs> the complete absence elsewhere in the Bible of any association of Jesus Christ with uh, the name Father. To use this loan application of the term father and apply that as the sole justification for saying Jesus is the father is to do violence to all the other passages that clearly make a distinction between the father and the son my friends think about it Do we accept that Joseph is the father of Jesus simply on the basis of Mary's comment in Luke chapter 2? Your father and I have sought you sorrowing. Do we latch on to that verse and say, see, Jesus couldn't have been incarnate because here's a Bible text that clearly says Jesus had an earthly father. And Mary, of all persons, should know. Now, why do we not latch on to that verse in that way? Why do we not accept Joseph? As the father of the babe of Bethlehem. Well friends simply because of the overwhelming weight of scripture against such a blasphemous conclusion. When we read all that the prophets have spoken in both the Old and the New Testament concerning the birth of this child. We know that Joseph could not possibly have been his father. So obviously we have to look for some other explanation of Mary's words. Because yes, she of all people knew Joseph was not the father of the holy child Jesus. So what's the explanation? Well, perhaps... Only in a legal sense, 
and for convenience sake within the home and among friends and associates, Joseph could have been referred to as his father or parent. In fact, we don't really need to look beyond the next verse in Luke chapter 2 for the answer. Because Jesus said to them, Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And so it is, friends, with Isaiah 9 verse 6. We look for some other explanation and we don't really need to look you know, far, because the answer is found within the text. Come on, think about it. Do you think that the same text which announces that a son is given would also announce the impossible contradiction that the son is his own father? Also in giving another explanation in line with scripture. The term father is not always used in the same sense by scripture. Sometimes it's employed in a figurative sense as in the case of Abraham. Abraham was the actual father of only eight sons. But the whole Jewish nation reckoned its generation from him. And therefore they said in John chapter 8 verse 39, talking to Jesus, Abraham is our father. Similarly, Adam is the father of our race. Jesus, the second Adam, is the father, the head of the new race of believers. And that's backed up in Hebrews 2, verse 13, Jesus speaking to the father. Jesus speaking to the father says, Here am I and the children whom you have given me. In that fatherly sense, in the sense then that Jesus can be said to to be our spiritual father. How do you get that? So what we have here is a designation of a quality of the Messiah with respect to his people. And when we think of the way in which the Messiah deals with those who are his own, he acts towards them as a father towards the children, his children. That's why we... Uh, sang our opening hymn, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, because in that hymn, uh, Henry Light, uh, you know, captures perfectly, you know, what we're driving at here this evening. In that third verse that, that we, were, we were singing, uh, Father Like, uh, did you note that when we were singing? Father, like he tends and spurs us, well our feeble frame he knows, in his hands he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. 
So we need to be clear that this is not a reference to the first person of the Trinity, but rather it's an indication of the quality of the Messiah with respect to his people, with respect to his children. And obviously, secondly, second thing that it's not, but secondly, and linked obviously to that first point, it's important for us to understand that the adjective everlasting is not referring to the eternal nature of the Messiah being as eternal with the Father and with the Son, but rather it is referencing the never-ending nature of his care. Okay, now some of you take notes. That was a mouthful, and I'll repeat it for you. Okay? So the adjective everlasting is not referring to the eternal nature of the Messiah's being as eternal with the Father and with the Son, but rather it is referencing the never-ending nature of his cur. So it would be helpful to think of the name everlasting Father as Father forever, because the adjective is qualifying the nature of his Father-like cur. It goes on forever and ever and ever. Having taken on the charge of the parental care of his own, he is not going to abandon them. That there need be no fear that this father will leave home. There need be no fear that this father will abandon his charge somewhere along the line. He is father forever, having taken taken on the charge. And if you're saying, what charge? If you haven't picked it up, the charge of adopting us into his family. He will never throw us out. He will never abandon us. He will never relinquish his responsibilities towards us. He will never renege on any one of his promises. Why? Because he is not only wonderful counselor. He is not only mighty God. But he is also everlasting father. Now, in order to try and flesh this title out and to try and help you to grasp what I'm driving at here this evening John read for us from Psalm 103 so turn to Psalm 103 that um, Psalm that our opening hymn was based upon Psalm 103 verse 13 the third verse of hymn 29 was based on Psalm 103, verse 13, takes us to the very heart of the matter. As a father, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. 
Here is a designation of the quality of the Messiah. How does he treat us? Well, he pities, he has compassion. And whether you see or whether you use pities or your translation has compassion, these words highlight the warmth and the, the emotion and the significance of the Hebrew verb, which, which is used here. It's a verb which, if you like, distinguishes or defines or marks the nature of true parenthood. Every father views his children in a way that he doesn't view anyone else's children. You know, you cannot, on your best day, view someone else's child the way you view your own. You know, we delight to take these little ones up in our arms and we admire them and we compliment them. You know, how cute they look, how beautiful. Do all manner of things, say all manner of things about them. But it's a peculiarity of fatherhood. That when you look on your own children, there is something in that dimension of relationship that cannot be duplicated outside of the bounds of that relationship. And all that is contained in this Hebrew verb, as a father pitieth his children, as it says in the old A.V., It's all of that empathy and compassion and everything else. And says the psalmist, this is the way in which the love of the Father is defined in miserable love. Conferred not only in the fastness of the distances, but also in the intimacy of family life as far as east is from west. All of the fastness of this to convey the fastness of his goodness. And then as a father, verse 13, pities his children. So the Lord pities those who fear him. And he, he narrows, as it were, the angle down. He, he brings the lens in, into the intimacy of uh, familial relationships. Now just let us notice, you know, three Aspects of what it means for the Messiah to be eternally father or forever father to his children. First of all, it means that he forgives us completely. You know, if you look at the language of this psalm that was read for us, it comes out very clearly in verse 3. You know, first... One, he's saying, bless the Lord of my soul. Why? Because he is the one, verse 3, who forgives all your iniquities. He is the one, verse 4, who redeems your life from destruction. Down to verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. And then, of course, 
he goes on to say in verse 12, as far as east is from west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. My friends, never make the dreadful mistake of sitting there saying, well, this is wonderful. It is wonderful. But don't make the mistake of saying, that's wonderful. This means that somehow or another, God just overlooks sin. That he is a forgiving God. That's his job. And it doesn't really matter what I have done. It's all taken care of. Because that's what Psalm 103 is saying. No, you get the wrong end of the stick. That would be a dreadful mistake to make. That would be like making God some kind of benevolent Santa Claus who said, yeah, you're on the naughty list, but don't worry about it. You know, I'm going to give you the, you know, going to give you something nice just to see him. I know you deserve this, uh, but I'm going to give you that anyway. Now, actually, it's far more complex and far more significant because when we take what the Bible says concerning the forgiveness of God, a full and final and complete forgiveness, that always has to be set within the context of God's holy character. And because God is holy, and because God is just, he cannot, he does not, and he will not condone our sins, transgressions, and iniquities, nor will he just look over them and say it doesn't matter. Immediately, you know, uh, when we realize that God is serious about sin, uh, that's a problem for each of us because we, we all know that we have broken God's holy law. Now, each of us have transgressed against him. Each of us knows what it is to have that bias within our very beings, which fears towards our own selfish agendas and seeks to turn our back away from the path that God has marked out for us. When we lie in our beds and the searching gaze of our conscience spins around, when we open up our minds to the truth of the Bible and what the Bible teaches, then we recognize that the justice of God must punish sin. And if he is ever going to grant forgiveness, it cannot be because he has just chosen to overlook the fault. No, he has chosen to deal with the fault, the sin. And the punishment that that sin deserves upon his own beloved son. What, what can wash away the stain of sin? What can wash away the stain of sin? Amen. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from every sin. So we... We can't get to the story of forgiveness by simply, you know, just looking at the babe in the manger. We need to follow the line of Isaiah's dramatic portrayal of who he 
the everlasting Father, the forever Father is. To discover that this is that this child grows to manhood, and in his manhood, he is described as the one who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, the one who has been wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Then the writers of the Gospels and the Epistles, they tease this out for us and help us to understand it, that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve because the Messiah has died in the place of sinners. That God does not count our sins against us because he counts our sins against his only begotten beloved son. But his only begotten son lived in perfection. His only begotten son never sinned. There's absolutely no reason in the universe uh, why, you know, why he had to die because he is sinless and it's only sinners die. He should never have been condemned. And yet he is. Why? Because he is the substitute. He dies in the place of sinners. God in Christ did the unimaginable. He covered himself in in our shame, in our sin, so that we could be covered in his glory and his righteousness. That all of the accusing load of my rebellion and my self-satisfied, self-focused living is nailed to the cross. And it's nailed to the cross once for all and it needs no repetition. Nor does it have to be supplemented by human endeavor. It's perfect because the Messiah is perfect. It cleanses perfectly the most darkened, fearful, and troubled conscience. Secondly, not only does he forgive us completely, but he knows us thoroughly. Look at verse 14, Psalm 103. He knows our frame. He knows how we are formed. Boy, sent us, you know, spend fast resources seeking to understand the complexities of the human frame. And here the psalmist says that he who is everlasting father, the forever father, knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You know, each of us, as a shelf life, you don't need me to tell you that. You know, we're not just drifting around hap- haphazardly. We really don't need to be concerned, do we, brothers and sisters, about the pressures that are impressed upon us in these uh, times in which we live? You know, if we know God as our Father, if we know Jesus as our wonderful Savior, you know, that, that takes a pressure off, doesn't it? You're, you're more than a number. What did the, the drifters sing? You're more than a number in my little red book. You're more than a one-night stand. You're not just a number. You're not a national insurance number. You're not just three digits on the back of your credit card. I mean, if we had a pound for every time we were asked, And what's the three numbers in the back of the card, please? 
You know, we'd be buying extra Christmas presents for each other, wouldn't we? How many times you, you asked, uh, just give me the number, the long number across the front of your card. And sometimes you might feel as though you're just that big long number. Sometimes you might feel you're just three digits. You're more than a number in God's book. You have a father who knows you by name. Before time began, he knew you. He knew me. I'm not worthless and neither are you. If you have this everlasting father, you are not worthless. The story of your life is not planked in soup to be snuffed out like a candle. We are created by the Lord God Almighty for a relationship with him. That the relationship has been broken because of our sin. We know. But yet we also know that he has taken the initiative. And he has come and he has done something in Jesus the Messiah in order to restore that relationship. In order that we might have that family relationship with him. And finally... He forgives us completely. That was the first one. He knows us thoroughly. And, and thirdly, I'll just give you the heading because time is gone. Um, thirdly, you can think about this as you lie in your bed tonight before you, uh, you go to sleep. He loves you endlessly. That's the third one. He loves you endlessly. Look what it says in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. That is hesed, covenant love. Jeremiah 31.3 says, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. His love brings people to repentance. When we realize that, you know, when we realize... What I deserve, I will never receive because of a love which has provided a savior in this Messiah who, who took what I deserved. And he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And from everlasting to everlasting, you will notice it says in verse 17 of Psalm 103, the Lord's mercy, the Lord's love is on those who fear him. This is his covenant love, beloved, which takes the initiative in binding to himself a people that are his very own. We, we don't need to hide the fact that life for many of us, for many people, is a disaster. Life for many is a disappointment. People are disenchanted with life. Too many people we know out there are looking for something else. And here we are in in the Bible, and we are introduced to a love that seeks us out. The kind of love that pursues us and woos us. Just like a lady looking for the final piece of her necklace that she dropped when she was busy cleaning her house. Like a shepherd who has 99 sheep safely in the fold, but he goes out and he looks for that one that is lost. Like a father who looks and longs for the return of a, wi uh, a wayward son. Beloved, this, this is the, the story of the gospel. This is the amazing and wonderful story 
that God whom, whom I choose to ignore, the God who, who I turned my back on, pursued the likes of me, and brought me into relationship with himself, the God in whom I expressed zero interest, sought me out. It's amazing, isn't it? You're saying, your brother, sister in Christ, you're saying the same. He sought me out. And he loves me. With a never-lasting love. Some of you will maybe go on here. Uh, Messiah over the Christmas period. I'll be listening to it in classic FM. Who wrote? Who wrote Messiah? Who? Handel. Who wrote the words of Handel's Messiah? Who? Shout out, John. No. No, we're, we're talking about Handel's Messiah. Who, who wrote the words? Isaiah. No. We're talking about. We're talking about George Friedrich Handel. He wrote the score. Who wrote the words? That go with the score. Anybody? Nope. It was somebody called Charles Jennings. J E N N E N S. He was the man who dealt with the biblical text that accompanies Handel's. Messiah. He wrote to a friend expressing his hope that George Friedrich Handel's music would be good enough to accompany the biblical text. Interesting, isn't it? Because you tend to think Handel. I'm going to hear Handel. And it's amazing. We never think about the boy who put the words to the score. This is a quote from the letter that he wrote to his friend. I hope he, George Friedrich Handel, I hope he will lay out the whole genius and his whole genius and skill upon it. That the composition may excel all his former compositions as the subject excels every other subject. The subject is Messiah. End of quote. It's fantastic. That he who is so fastly different from us became one of us. 
and is expressed in Messiah, isn't it? You know, he became one of us, not just a stranger in the bus, but a friend. And a constant companion. And as a loving, everlasting father, forever father, he's prepared to share his life with us. We share our lives with him. He forgives us completely. He knows us thoroughly. He loves us endlessly. Endlessly. 